You're listening to a special Renew Economy podcast series, Locking in the Green Energy Transition. Presented by Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy, and Kate Muller, a partner at global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Hello and uh, welcome to this special Renew Economy podcast, Locking in the Green Energy Transition. Uh, this is a podcast series that we're co-hosting with uh, Norton Rose Fulbright and um don't think the timing could be any better. This week, of course, we've heard the news of the federal Australian government's decision to uh, switch from the uh, long-standing renewable energy target and move to an underwriting scheme with this ambition to get 32 gigawatts of new capacity um, locked in by 2027 so they can meet their ambitious 82% renewable energy forecast by 2030. So, We've kind of been waiting for this moment for a while. Um, the energy transition that uh, we've been expecting and talking about for so long um, now appears it's going to be happening. Um, and of course, that issue that, that sort of creates a lot of issues around planning and transmissions and connections and the engineering around the grid. And these are some of the things that we've been talking about um, in our first episode of the green energy locking in the green energy transition with Norton Rose Fulbright. Uh, we talked to Central Energy CEO uh, John Cleland, and that was a fascinating insight into the spare capacity that exists in distributed networks around the uh, grid. In this episode of this podcast, we're going to be looking at an equally fascinating um, topic about um, AI and what role that could be playing into managing the grid. And I think that's going to be increasingly important as we move to this sort of inverter-based technologies rather than big old spinning machines. Anyway, I'm going to take a bit of a back seat during this, and I'm going to be letting Kate Muller, who is the um, head of energy transitions or energy transitions partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, um, who's going to be leading this discussion. Kate has uh, sat at the frontier of Australia's energy transition for more than a decade now, and has been working alongside developers, asset owners, financiers, um, looking at developing these projects and venturing in finance. So he's been in a prime position to see what's planned, see what works, see what doesn't work. And um, I'm going to hand over to Kate now, who's going to introduce our guest for the day. So please sit back and listen, enjoy another fascinating episode of Locking in the Green Energy Transition. Kate? Thanks so much for that introduction, Giles. And yes, certainly sitting at the frontier of the transition, we're always kept on our toes. And I don't think we knew uh, yesterday that we'd be in the new world that we are in today following Minister Bowen's announcement overnight. So very exciting times. Um, A little bit too short notice to completely pivot our discussion today. Um, But certainly we watch the policy settings and the impact they have on our on our sector very, very closely. And we're excited to see what the what the underlying uh, settings will look like and how that'll roll out across across Australia in the coming coming months and years. Sorry, Kate, I just interrupted then. I still was going to take a back seat and look, it didn't even last 20 seconds. But yes, I just think I actually underlines the, the need to actually get all these settings right and things like that in AI is going to be quite important. But okay, back to you. Sorry about that. That's okay, Giles. Thank you. Um, So before we really launch in, I'd really like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we're gathering. Um, I'm in Mianjin, Brisbane, on Turrbal and Yuggera country, Um, but we are all listening in and gathering from lands across Australia and also New Zealand. Um, We live on and benefit from unceded lands and acknowledge and extend 
our respect to elders of those traditional owner groups past and emerging. Um, without any further ado, though, I'd like to introduce Ben Irons, uh, who's co-founder and chief strategy officer at Habitat Energy. Prior to his role at Habitat, Ben was executive director and board member at Aurora Energy Research, where he founded and led the consulting practice for four years. And before that, he worked in energy and sustainability consulting at McKinsey and Company. Um, so Ben, with your energy career now spanning continents, decades and a variety of roles, um, you could probably provide a few anecdotes about transformations in the energy sector. Um, is there one in particular that stands out for you that you could share with us today? Absolutely. And thank you for the introduction, Kate. It's great to be with you all today. Um, so you've heard a little of my career and I guess I'm fortunate to have seen this transition coming from a long way out. Um, one of my other roles, I don't think you mentioned, was actually at Centrica uh, Energy, which is a big utility in the UK, at a time when they were actually starting to think, hang on a minute, the world's changing. Um, you know, the idea of a you know, big centralized um, you know, thermal generation and vertically integrated utilities is starting to creak at the seams and starting to be challenged. Um, and they were thinking then, and I was helping as, as a strategy director think about what some of the alternatives might be and how that transition could play out. Um, my role at Aurora was um, doubly exciting, getting to advise a wide range of clients thinking about where they should be investing and what the new emerging technologies would be, um, who the winners and losers would be and how they could be a, a, you know, part of that, that transition. Um, and so it was after that when I was thinking, I, I personally also want to be a part of this transition. What can I do to, to you know, get in, in the thick of the action? Um, and battery storage at that time was just emerging in the UK as a as a, a, a investable technology class that had a really important role to play. So, um, I, as all uh, as many good businesses uh, do, start in the pub. Uh, ours was no exception. I was there with a with a mate, and we said, "If we want to start a business, what should we do?" Um, we thought battery storage was a good place to be, and we asked ourselves the question: You know, how can we, as a couple of guys with an idea or you know wanting to start a business? actually play a role in helping battery storage get built out with the broader ambition that if battery storage comes that can support the renewables which can support the broader energy transition and and so that was where we started um we thought the emergence of ai was um at that time was uncanny uh, you know convenient timing that we could bring those two things together and so we've created a business that supports owners of battery storage um through the use of this uh, new emerging technology and it's a it's an exciting place to be great thanks so much ben we'll we'll dive into that in a little bit more detail in a moment. Um, but another innovator, and I'm not sure if all of your best ideas come about at the pub, Nick, but um, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Nick Abrams, um, who is a global, global leader in, of our digital transformation practice here at Norton Rose Fulbright. Um, in his spare time, and I'm not sure how much he has, but he's managed to co-found um, an online legal platform, LawPath, and also write two books on tech and data. So Nick, you've experienced a few decades at the intersection of law, technology and innovation, um, both in advising clients, but yourself really in the thick of it. So is there a story that springs to mind that you can share about how this transformation is playing out in the energy sector in particular? Yeah, thanks, Kate. And uh, lovely to be on the show. And uh, hello, everyone. Uh, look, I, sh I should start out by saying that, you know, uh, Australia and New Zealand are very close in many respects and um, good ideas germinating in pubs is also another one of those. So certainly that has been uh, a hallmark of some of the things I've done over the years. 
If we look at the way digital transformation has impacted our energy clients, and, and I'm lucky to have a global view on this because our firm does span uh, 30 countries, and we've found that actually the take-up of our digital transformation offering has been most significant in the energy space, and that's because the energy sector has, has been very familiar with technology over the years, obviously. It's a very technology-heavy business, but more engineering style technology and then over recent years with digital transformation it's been quite a challenge to upskill uh, the legal teams and so forth and so uh, a number of clients i'm thinking of one in particular but this has happened across many clients now have separate dedicated digital transformation legal teams and they are focused on particularly how does the organization deal with data and I guess just a, a quick anecdote about that is one of the organizations that we're working with, uh, one of the, the, the business leaders I was speaking to was lamenting the fact that now in their technology procurement agreements, uh, they, it used to be the case that there were sort of three or four paragraphs dealing with data and privacy. And now they have a 14 page addendum dealing with information security, privacy, and cyber risk. So uh, we've definitely seen an impact in terms of the way that uh, technology companies procure uh, new, particularly digital transformation enabling technologies. So Nick, you've experienced a few decades at the intersection of law, technology and innovation. Um, is there a story that springs to mind that you can share about how this transformation has played out in the energy sector in particular? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen, particularly as being a global firm and across 30 countries, looking at the way energy companies particularly have had to embrace digital transformation has been quite a challenge for them as they move from older modalities of technology into how to work in the digital realm. And so we've seen with all of our clients really developing legal capabilities around digital transformation, and most particularly the use and protection of data. And I guess, a, you know, the story that springs to mind is a leader of, um, of one of the energy companies saying to me, how did it occur that the data provisions in our standard technology procurement documents went from being four paragraphs to now a 10-page addendum to the documents as it needs to cover information security, privacy, and cybersecurity issues? So I think everyone has had to change and get ready for the idea of how better to manage and protect data in the digital transformation age. Thanks so much, Nick. So we thought we'd do a bit of a deeper dive, Ben, now on, on Habitat and what it is you're doing with that venture. So the genesis of this conversation really came about following a panel where we explored AI in in energy. And one of your colleagues shared with us some statistics about the benefits of best optimization and really sort of explained how AI is feeding into those real revenue gains and benefits for, for battery owners across not only Australia, but, but globally. Um, so perhaps we start, Ben, with you telling us a little bit about Habitat Energy and what it is you do. Thanks, Kate, certainly. So Habitat was set up to answer 
uh, to respond specifically to the challenge that you just described, how do you get the maximum possible revenue out of a battery storage asset? It's complicated. I think it's fair to say that that um, the optimization of battery storage is more complex than it is arguably for any other generation technology that you'd see on the power system. And there's a lot of reasons for that I'll go into. Um, but as a result, a lot of asset owners, battery owners, are turning to third-party companies who have specialist skills in this area to help them manage and optimize their batteries. And that's the space that Habitat is in. Um, we started the company in 2017. As I, uh, I was saying, a lot of battery storage was getting built in the UK at that time. That's where I was based and my co-founders were based. Um, we were getting uh, people asking us, you know, how, how should we go about this um, if we take our battery to, you know, maybe more traditional optimization partners, do they really have the skills for something that's new and different in the way that battery storage is? And so we saw an opportunity to, to, to create a service that, that could do all of the elements of, of revenue generation. There's a few parts to that. So you first of all have to physically connect something to the battery to tell it what to do, to send dispatch instructions, to tell it to charge or discharge, and then receive information back to collect information about say the state of charge or the temperature. Um, based on that physical capability and the control you then have over the battery, um, the optimizer, us, would be also looking then to um, plan how that battery should behave. We'll be forecasting how prices are expected to evolve over minutes, hours, and sometimes days, and all of the relevant power markets. So that'll be wholesale markets, ancillary markets, and others. Um, we will be um, taking those price forecasts and turning them into a, a basically a plan for when we think the battery will be serving those different markets and what it will be doing at different times. And then we will actually execute trades through a route to market um, uh, in order to actually effectively monetize the, the, the opportunities um, and the actions of the battery. So buying power in relevant wholesale markets or making um, bids and offers for ancillary services and earning that revenue on behalf of the asset owner and then passing it on to them with all of the practicalities that go with that, this you know, settlement and reporting and other, other dimensions. So that's the that's the service that we offer in a, in a nutshell. I guess... The, the skills that we think are needed to underpin that, um, and again, this is maybe different from other technologies, there is, of course, a big focus on on uh, software and intelligence, and that's uh, the theme of today, of course, and we're interested to explore more about um, what AI can do in this space, but that's a big part of it for us. You know, we've got data scientists, we've got software engineers, we've got some really smart guys who can do all of the number crunching and um, automated uh, calculations in order to manage that, that revenue generation process in, in an effective way. Um, that's just part of it. I think there's a couple of other parts that we think are important. Um, somewhat unusually in the market and, and relative to some of our peers, we put a, a reasonably strong focus on having human traders involved in this process. We think that no matter how good your algorithms are, um, there are some things that humans are always going to be better at. And we think having human traders who can oversee the operations, who can you know, pick up the phone we needed, can solve problems, can potentially intervene and or support the, the role of the algorithms um, are a really useful part of this. Um, and then the third piece that we think is important is actually understanding the battery itself, what it's capable of physically um, and how it's going to perform over the longer term. And there's a big discussion to be had there about degradation, um, how you can manage the life of the asset, get the best out of it, um, minimize the, the cost of degradation as you cycle. As you'll know from you know, owning a, a battery in your cell phone or whatever else, batteries don't last forever. And when an asset could be worth you know, hundreds of millions of dollars potentially, uh, that degradation becomes a pretty significant part of the management challenge. And that's something we think uh, really hard about. So that's the service in a nutshell. Um, just to, to round out and tell you a bit more about the, the footprint and where we're at. Um, started in the UK, as I said, we're most well established there. We've got about a thousand megawatts of battery storage um, uh, contracted and about half of that operational. Uh, we have about 80 staff, most of them in the UK and our head office in Oxford. 
um, but we've also got offices in um, Texas, in Austin, and Melbourne and Australia. Uh, so really excited to have come as far as we have. Seems a long way since uh, that, that conversation in the pub to have got to the stage and to be in the middle of all the exciting opportunities we are, but we're, we're thrilled to be here and I'm glad to tell you more about uh, how we see the space today. Super, thanks so much for that, Ben. I think one thing that I'm really interested in understanding is obviously AI has a key role in this, um, in the in the software and in the algorithms and and piecing that together. But it sounds as though Habitat's sort of human element is really a key differentiator in what it is that Habitat's doing for its customers. Can you sort of tease that out a little bit more so that we understand how that how that works? Of course. I mean, I'll start with saying what the automated AI based. Uh, tools are best for, and that is the the, the sort of pure number crunching uh, component of this, which is, is substantial and important, of course. You know, every um, for every five minute trading period in the Australian market, for example, we're having to um, pull in data from the asset, we're pulling in data from the market, uh, we're pulling in all kinds of sources of raw data, and using that to come up with a forecast for how we think every five minute period in every one of the 10 or so markets that we're trading across is going to evolve um, over the next 24 hours. And doing that, not just as a point estimate, but actually trying to create a distribution of possible price outcomes, a whole bell curve, if you like. Um, so already there, you can see the the, the you know, granularity blows out across multiple dimensions to be a, a hugely demanding computational challenge. We're doing this every five minutes, as I said, and actually that's a real constraint for us, the time it actually takes to compute uh, and forecast and optimize and, and then re-optimize every five minutes could take more than five minutes if we had it. Uh, so, you know, already you've got a sense there why, you know, cloud hosting and um, efficient algorithms and, and designing all of this in a, in a clever way is, is incredibly important. And there's obviously no way that humans could compete with that. Um, and, and that's why these, these automated tools are so important. But um, where humans can add value, well, AI sometimes uh, described as, you know, some part of the AI talk it is machine learning. And the, the clue is in the name. Machines learn from things that they've seen in the data before. But in many dimensions, we're seeing things in the energy market that are unprecedented. And so you can't expect a machine that learns from things it's seen before to be able to anticipate or handle events that might be un unprecedented or even just unusual. Um, and so when uh, the humans can be particularly valuable is when there's there's unusual things happening. And those could be uh, outages, for example, uh, if there's a, an issue with the battery or some of the cells go down. And I mean, for one thing, there's a practical role just to, to get the problem fixed um, where humans can be useful. But there also may need to be human intervention to, to manage around that outage, to um, uh, you know, reposition the trades that we have, to, to step out of um, whatever commitments we've made. Um, there might be extreme market volatility where, you know, th th things are going extreme, prices are going very high or very low. Um, having the experience of human traders to actually understand what the underlying causes are, you know, they can be monitoring the market, um, picking up uh, the action on the ground. And that, that can be a, a very useful perspective. And oftentimes in those situations, humans can, we believe, uh, actually outperform uh, algorithms. So I think, Nick, Habitat is obviously a product of, of this time in terms of the, the intersection of the technology uh, for batteries and how they interact with the market, but also the, the growth of AI and its ability to gather data and interrogate it and learn. Um, we're in the midst of a significant transformation in the energy sector. It's obviously partly physical, quite literally, in shifting the way electricity is, is generated 
stored and transmitted, um, but it's also inevitably intersected by these technological transformations. Um, at a high level, based on what you've observed historically and in your practice now, what do you see as some of the challenges and opportunities the sector will face in navigating changing technology? Yeah, so I think it's important when we talk about AI to remember that whilst it's in every newspaper every day right at the moment, actually AI has been around since the 1950s and it's had a couple of big moments where it was the next big thing and then faded to nothing. And then over the last 10 years, we've seen AI or a version of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is just the idea that the machine is able to replicate some of our cognitive capabilities of our biological brain. And so over the last 10 years, we've seen machine learning, and that's what Ben referred to, and that's where sort of habitat is, so where the machine learns from the data. But I think why AI is so much part of the zeitgeist right at the moment is really what happened 12 months ago, almost to the day where ChatGPT launched onto the market, and we had what's called generative AI, which is a different branch of artificial intelligence, where the AI is actually creating content and insights off its own bat. And I think it's important to recognize the distinction because what I'm seeing with energy companies right at the moment, machine learning uh, is in some ways quite a safe proposition because you're working with data and um, you know it's not, it's not coming up necessarily with specific um, uh, uh, decisions and so forth, whereas generative AI does cause issues for organisations. And so where we're seeing generative AI uh, come into the market, it used to be that it was just external to the organisation through chat GPT and so forth. But now by stealth, it's come into the organisation. So Microsoft Copilot, which is in many organisations right at the moment, and will be within all organizations that are using Microsoft products within the next 12 months. It's effectively chat GPT style functionality inside the firewall and that you're able to use across Outlook, Excel, etc. So what I'm seeing with energy companies right at the moment is how do we manage this challenge? We've got the machine learning side of things and how we deal with data on that. And, and that's that's been evolving over time, but now... It's how do we manage generative AI and generative AI being in the organization and whether it's Microsoft or Salesforce or ServiceNow or any of the big technology providers, it is inside most organizations by stealth. So I guess in terms of how boards and senior leadership teams should look at this, I think firstly, you know, what is the AI strategy? And there has to be a strategy. There are opportunities for all organisations out of AI, but there's also significant threats. Um, and then, you know, the challenges are really around the data sets. So AI performs best if it's got access to diverse data sets. How do you get those diverse data sets? How do you build the capability in-house? How do you work together with uh, amazing uh, fast growth companies uh, such as Ben's company? Uh, and then, you know, with that, if you're working as a big organization with a fast growth AI technology company like Ben's company, how, how flexible are you as a large organization to work together with, you know, another vet with a vendor that may not be at the same level of maturity and so need to adjust particularly procurement techniques and so forth to working with those companies? 
So Ben, as an innovator and disruptor, you know, I expect you're assessing these challenges and opportunities all of the time for your own business and in your own business. Um, what do you make of them, particularly for for energy and those that are active in in the energy sector? I think we see, certainly see this as a positive opportunity, uh, far more than a challenge. Um, it's worth making the obvious point that battery storage itself is actually a new technology to the energy sector to a large extent. It's really only in the last you know, six or seven years that we've actually seen battery storage um, cheap enough to be viable as an as a, um, energy shifting or, or grid scale um, technology. Um, so that has emerged relatively quickly, which is a good thing. You know, we know the challenges of integrating more and more renewables on the grid is that um, we're going to see volatility and we need to be able to move that uh, power around to when we need it. And battery storage is, is a critical role to play there. But um, there are challenges with how we use batteries for that application. And that's where the simultaneous, if you like, arrival of AI tools um, is incredibly fortunate. Um, just to try and bring to life uh, how useful these tools are and what we do. Um, I mean, I was trained, I'm showing my age here, but when I went to university, you know, we were taught econometrics and statistics and the idea that you'd parameterize an equation and you'd get your data and you'd fit a curve and then you'd, you know, extrapolate or forecast from there. It was a very manual, very time consuming process. Um, uh, there is no reason why those tools couldn't uh, do uh, create energy forecasts of the sort needed to manage batteries, but it's difficult. Um, just to take an example, when we were setting up our business uh, in the very early days, building our first uh, sort of MVP product in the UK, we had something up and running. It was doing real-time forecasts every day. We were tracking it and watching it, and every day it got better, which was exciting because we were seeing the machine learning do its thing. We came in one morning to the office to see uh, how it performed uh, overnight, and suddenly everything had gone off the rails. And we thought, that's weird. It's a bit disconcerting. You know, we thought machine learning was smart. What's going on? It turned out that that night the clocks had changed. It was daylight saving time, and we hadn't told the, um, the the machine learning tools anything about that. We hadn't signaled it. It just simply noticed that rather than the evening peak or the morning peak starting at a certain time, and suddenly the next day it started an hour later for no good reason. So all of the models that it built and all of the forecasting it was doing suddenly the accuracy dropped. Um, we sort of reverted to the old school model of thinking, right, we've got to build a new input. We need to tell the tools whether or not it's daylight saving time and then it will you know, self-correct. Honestly, by the time we'd done that, and this is the, this is the punchline, if you like, it took us a couple of days, the machine learning had already worked out that something had shifted and it had already adjusted itself. So that old school mentality that we had to feed that raw data in ourselves using our human intuition was effectively bypassed by the machine learning. That's a very simplified example, but when you extrapolate that out to then hundreds of variables and things like a change in the underlying generation mix or a change in the market design or you know new opportunities to, to apply battery storage to some of these applications, this is where machine learning is, is incredibly powerful and I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for the whole industry. If we can uh, generate revenue from battery storage and, and attract investment, then you know we have the other um, part of the equation, we can get the renewables built, but we can also get those batteries built and and integrate and, and use that that power and um, and hasten the transition to a, a clean energy system. That is so interesting. I guess earlier you'd mentioned the human element is important to deal with unforeseen or unknown events, but I guess the more that we have transition or the faster this transition is happening and the more unusual activity, you know, these machines can sense perhaps they're getting quicker 
at responding to those events and being able to more, more quickly forecast and adapt. Um, so it's really interesting to see how technology and machine learning are interfacing in being able to grapple with those issues, sometimes perhaps even faster than humans can. Exactly. Um, so in my practice, whether we're dealing with early stage project development development or thinking about sort of the later stages of final investment decisions and, and raising project finance for these for these projects. There's obviously always been a really significant role for modelling projections and scenario testing and obviously they vary widely in terms of how how accurate they turn out to be in reality. Um, I'm curious Ben, you know, obviously AI, as Nick has said, it's been around for a long time but it's just a little bit more sexy and popular now, um, given ChatGPT. Um, but really, the modelling and projections and scenario testing has it been largely a human endeavour up until now? And how do you see technology perhaps making some making some headway or ground in that role in the future? Yeah, um, I'm interested in that transition. Absolutely, in one of my previous roles at Aurora, Aurora Energy Research, that was basically our job was to come up with these. Um, long-term perspectives, whole system modeling, they call it, where you try and simulate how every different generation asset would behave on the system and respond to different levels of demand. And you can try and forecast out prices, you know, 10, 20, 30 years into the future and, and then effectively uh, estimate what an asset could earn over its life and therefore whether it's, a, it's an attractive investment today. It's an incredibly important um, service. You know, very few investors uh, who are actually putting money into battery storage or any other investment would do so without consulting that kind of a model and, and getting an estimate of how they think that the system is going to behave over the, the long term. With battery storage, there are a number of additional complexities. I mean, technology is already playing a, a huge role in those long-term forecasts of the sort that Aurora and others do. Um, but for battery storage, there's an additional complexity, which is what a battery is going to earn actually depends who's operating it. Um, these things are complicated, and if you put two or three different companies or um, tools to, to coming up with a solution, they're very likely going to come up with a different answer. So if you're trying to understand if a particular battery is a good investment or not, you actually need to take into account who is going to be optimizing it and how they're going to be optimizing it. And so, um, yes, you're, you're dead right. The, the things that we do with AI on a real-time basis when it comes to a, an asset that's actually built, um, oftentimes we will do in a simulation basis using a, what we call a digital twin uh, of uh, trading an asset um, that doesn't actually exist and, and estimating what it could earn, how we would manage it um, in order to support the investment case. Um, uh, we see that as part of our role in, in, in getting these assets built out and then hopefully ourselves operating them when they're, uh, when they're built. So yes, definitely an application for AI in that area. And Nick, you mentioned earlier sort of data ownership and protection is so important. I guess in developing the projects, the more data available, the, the better the the better the intelligence, the better the product that'll come out of it. Can you um, elaborate a little bit more on how you see sort of data protection and ownership playing out in the development of these AI tools? Yeah, I think what's critical to understand is that the reason that AI is enabled the way it is these days is because of the massive amounts of data that we're able to get access to and also the amount of cloud computing capability. So it's the intersection of those two things. So data is the critical asset for AI and, and, a, and an efficient AI strategy. Now, the problem with that is, 
I guess, firstly, if you're looking at your own internal data, there are insights to be derived. And as Ben said, the machine learns from the data. But what we know is that the more data sets you have and the more diverse data sets you have, then the better your insights can become. And what that means is that often we're seeing energy companies having to work together with other organizations, sometimes who they might be regarded as competitive with the the existing organization, but trying to share data in that scenario. And that becomes quite complicated because at a legal level, data by itself is not capable of ownership. It doesn't attract copyright protection. And so it becomes a quite difficult legal exercise to understand how the data is to be owned and used, where it's being shared between various third parties. I guess the the final thing I would say about data is the critical point about data is having a lot of it is helpful, but having clean data. So there's a, a lot of talk in the AI world about dirty data sets. So data that's not clean, that has, you know, not not great metadata attached to it and so forth is not particularly helpful and the machines don't like that. So what we're seeing is organizations wanting to ensure that the data they get access to, uh, not only is there some legal entitlement to that, but also that it is cleaned in a particular way. Thanks, Nick. Um, So we've also seen a greater focus in recent times on the environmental and social credentials, not only for electrons and energy, but also procurement more broadly across entire supply chains and, and every sector. So, you know, People are asking more questions and wanting to understand more about the the genesis of the things that they're acquiring um, and those credentials that that underpin them. So, Nick, how can technology support better data and more transparent information to inform those purchasing decisions? I think the opportunity is definitely there. We've seen particularly around uh, the claims made in relation to, uh, you know, green energy compliance, etc., within the supply chain, it's been very difficult to date to actually validate that. But we are starting to see more and better technology which can actually prove out whether you know a particular supplier is actually providing you know so-called green energy or how green it is going back through the supply chain. So I think there's a great opportunity there. Um, I think the problem for many organizations is that uh, with with that opportunity and with the clarity of that data, I think what they're finding is that their performance against green energy targets are perhaps not what they might hope for. So it's an interesting conundrum, I think, that organizations find themselves in, which is uh, how much do they want to know about how green the supply chain is, because once you know that, you have that knowledge and you need to act accordingly. So Ben, in in that area, in terms of, I guess, the green and environmental and social credentials, you know, are you seeing some some technology and AI solutions emerging in the market for, for that problem? Um, yes, absolutely. I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of the asset owners, um, both of renewables and battery storage, are actually highly motivated uh, to 
understand the, the carbon benefits that they're bringing because that's the, the reason you know behind why a lot of these investments are getting made. A number of our early customers were actually uh, renewable owners who recognized that just simply investing in more and more renewables and building up more and more capacity was solving one problem of emissions, but potentially creating another, that unless those electrons were delivered at the right time, it, it created stress on the grid and so forth. So they saw a, a, a diversification into battery storage as part of that broader ESG remit, um, which I think is, is, is terrific. And it's it motivated a lot of investment into this sector. But the question remains, how do you measure the impact it's very very complicated um it's hard enough for renewables where you're thinking great we've got some some low carbon uh, generation but what's it actually displacing and how is that changing hour by hour um that in itself is a complicated problem but with energy storage both buying and selling power it's it becomes even more complex there are a number of companies using ai and other tools um, to try and answer exactly that problem uh one of them actually was launched uh, just a couple of weeks ago by our parent company um the product's called quintrace and the idea is that a, a, an energy consumer could actually have an auditable um, route to actually understand what exactly the the, the origin is of the, the electricity that they're consuming, um, and uh, as a result, you know, use that to make better better choices about their consumption or to procure green energy directly that can actually be verified back to source. So it's an area where a lot of work still needs to be done, but it is certainly exciting to see that the solution start to be solved. Which players do you see adapting and adopting? technology most effectively in the energy sector, Ben? Um, I've probably got a bias in answering this question to say, you know, small, agile and poorly funded startups like Habitat was in the in the early days. Um, there's, but joking aside, actually, it's probably an element of truth in that. Uh, certainly, I can compare the mindset that we had when we set out to start this business um, relative to what I'd experienced working for a big utility. Um, I don't think it's the fault of utilities that they're often slower to respond to some of these challenges. Um, you know, they've got big, complicated organizations doing lots of important things. And I think many in those organizations recognize the opportunities that are coming and even have the skills and mo motivation to address them. But big organizations are complicated to navigate and it's not always the easiest place to, to, to get going from. Um, I think actually one of the exciting things about um, some of the transition themes that we're talking about today is that it does create an opportunity for smaller companies who don't need to be you know vertically integrated or own huge power stations or have you know connection to the government or all of the other um, resources that that some of the bigger companies have but actually now there are roles emerging for a, a series of small companies working together across the value chain from you know small developers finding sites to um, you know, very specialist funds putting money in uh, to, to build these assets to companies like us operating them to, um, you know, law firms and others, um, O&M companies and the like, actually, you know, servicing the, the supply chain right from one end to the other with an opportunity to do that at a, at a smaller scale that actually actually works and therefore, you know, be more agile and, and more able to innovate where needed. And I guess without revealing any secrets, you may already have a few great ideas for where to next. Um, but where do you see investment opportunities for AI-enabled tech sort of emerging in the in the near term for the sector? I, I'm sure there's lots of people better qualified to answer that question than me. In truth, having come as far as we have over the last seven years to answer really one very specific question, um, I don't feel like the end is in sight. I feel like we're actually only just getting started. Um, we see such a huge opportunity to do more of what we're doing um, to uh, continue to build out the tech, to serve more batteries. We're seeing you know, incredible uh, scale of investment um, in Australia and, and Texas, for example, where 
you know, multiple clients looking to build, you know, thousands of megawatts um, in quite a quite a rapid speed. So for us, we feel like we've got uh, plenty to work on, even just in that area. But then adjacent areas would include, um, you know, how we could optimize load, for example, data centers or um, other other flexible sources of load. Um, potentially looking at behind the meter or um, smaller scale batteries, um, other sources of flexibility. Uh, there's lots of different directions this can go, but right now we're just uh, really trying to hold onto our hats and, and keep up with the with the demand for uh, for grid scale battery optimization. So in, in wrapping up the conversation, um, one, one angle that I'm quite interested in, and I think a lot of us are watching is sort of the role of technology in empowering consumers. Um, the conscious energy prosumer wants to understand more about where their energy is coming from and what it's going to cost, how they can leverage their own electrical infrastructure and smart technology to live to deliver better outcomes for themselves financially and for the environment. Um, we're seeing innovation in products as well uh, available to, to households, but there's a significant amount of change that has to happen, behavioural, technological and legal, um, in order to align that potential. I think we all expect the market will move in that direction, but a bit of a fun question, I guess, and we can open this up to, to everyone, including yourself, Giles, and invite you back into the room. Um, but with the pace of change, change we've witnessed up till now, how far away do we feel a truly smart and green electricity grid might be? Well, I'm not going to answer that question because I'm not the expert. I think I'm just a, 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 an observer that sort of is continuously stunned by the um, by the pace of the green tra transition. Um, and I think sort of uh, both Ben and Nick have sort of you know pointed out how quickly it's all become. Um, ben, I'm just actually sort of grateful. Well, I was grateful for a moment when you were sort of saying how you know at least humans had a role in sort of putting the clocks back, and then they discovered that AI could probably do that by itself. I'm just wondering how clever AI could possibly be. Could it actually um, map out better policy? That is a very interesting question. Uh, for sure, I think some of these simulation tools we talked about, understanding the impact of policy and avoiding the unintended impacts of, of bad policy, I think that's a terrific application. Uh, you know, in, in energy systems, electricity systems are so complex. Um, they're under huge stress. You know, batteries have a lot of things to offer, um, but they also add complexity. And in many markets, and probably the UK more than Australia, actually, we're seeing some of the strains appear on the system operator side with you know old market design 30 minute um granularity and trading for example and some of the ways that, that plants are dispatched by the system operator really coming under strain from battery storage so for sure there is a lot of work to be done to to get all of that working uh optimally um but more positively i, I don't think the energy transition is something that we say is ever done I think it's exciting the progress that we've made. We've obviously got a long way to go. Um, battery storage itself is rapidly evolving. You know, there's a whole uh, families of new technologies uh, emerging after the current uh, family of lithium ion related batteries that are going to have better performance. They'll be cheaper. Um, they'll allow us to decarbonize further. They'll no doubt present, you know, additional challenges from a management and optimization perspective. I think the theme that you mentioned, Kate, of what it means at the household level and how consumer behavior could actually be better informed and directed by AI, I think there's a huge amount that we can do there. Um, so uh, lots lots of exciting uh, work ahead. It's interesting stuff. I'm, and I've just got one little other little question too, is just maybe just about, um, you know, we've seen the speed of what's happening in the market and the speed of the technology. And look, you did touch on it before, but just... Um, 
what kind of needs to happen to make sure that households can come along with this? I mean, we've seen the households, I mean, you know, the change with the internet, the fact that we're doing this podcast over the internet, the fact that people got their mobile phones. I mean, do you think that can be relatively seamless or, or, or is there something particularly challenging about, you know, the provision of energy and, um, and those various things that are in people's homes with not just batteries, but solar and EVs and things like that? There is certainly, I think, a huge opportunity there. I think the key to making it work is to make it easy and, and smooth for the for the consumer. Um, and the challenge is that it requires a, a lot of things to change in a somewhat coordinated way across you know multiple countries, uh, companies, multiple parts of the supply chain, uh, multiple industries that all have to coalesce around new standards and new tools. And that always takes time uh, to, to go down that path. But I would like to think, you know, certainly in our household, we'd be very open and, um, to the idea of you know shifting consumption patterns or doing certain things at certain times if we were able to get a, a you know lower electricity price and have a lower carbon impact. But you know, where are the tools on my phone that allow me to to make those choices and do so easily and, and seamlessly to you know tell my dishwasher to come on at night, not in the evening when I push the button, and you know all of those things still just a little bit hard. And I think there's a lot of lot of progress we can make there. Mm. Well, Kate, um, thank you very much for um, just hosting a fascinating discussion about AI and the um, and the energy transition. Is there any sort of final observations that you want to make? I think it's an area that just will continue to surprise us in the way that it can influence and, you know, really drive and accelerate the energy transition, um, both in terms of investment decisions at the utility scale, um, but also at the at the household level in, you know, empowering consumers. Um, I think it's right, you know, we're still analog in a lot of ways, delayed timers and um, and so on in our in our household technology. So there's certainly a lot of room for things to move. I think the Internet of Things and and smart tech still has a way to go. Um, but it is fascinating to think about how AI is being leveraged already um, and the the growth trajectory that's been seen in those spaces and and the huge potential for that to continue in an exponential way as as are all these innovations and transformations that are happening in the sector around us so nothing else really to add other other than to thank nick and and ben for for joining me on this on this journey on this really short conversation through through ai and technology and thank you giles as well for providing the platform for us to do that well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'd just like to sort of um, add my thanks to um, Ben and Nick and to you, Kate, um, for really a fascinating discussion um, on this topic. And I'd like to thank uh, Norton Rose Fulbright also for um, sponsoring this series. Um, it um, It is locking in the green energy transition. Just a reminder that we had a previous episode sort of focusing on domestic um, or sort of distributed networks and the extra capacity that um, is and yet as as is yet untapped um, and it was interesting actually there that um, AI actually plays a significant role um, in, in uncovering that capacity and um, there'll be at least one more episode in this um, in this podcast series possibly two um, as we go forward so we look forward to um, returning with another fascinating discussion about the um, green energy transition and locking it in um, that's it for now thank you very much for listening and um, we'll be back again soon 